this morning I want to talk to you about the topic, it's not over until he says it's over. The last two years have been interesting for all of us, challenging us, stretching us in more ways than one. But what if a calamity fell on you in one day? Imagine being in the city of Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted, or being in Hiroshima or Nagasaki when the bomb dropped, or being on the Titanic and hearing that awful sound of metal scraping across an iceberg. What would you do? One terrible day can change everything. One bad moment can even start a chain of heartbreaking events, even plunge you into a dark season. Some of you have gone through dark seasons in your life, and some of you might even be in one right now. I think our nation, we can say, has been going through a lot of events these last few years, and it's been dark for a lot of people. And I want to start by reading to you you an amazing story from the Bible this morning. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Job chapter 1. It'll be on the screen. And I hope you're ready, because we're going through the whole chapter this morning. Right now, Job chapter 1, 22 verses. Hope you had your coffee. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man, man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of, on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven 
and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. There's a pattern here. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job rose, tore his robe, shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Verse 1 says that Job was an upright, a righteous man. And verse 22 shows us that through all of this calamity, he didn't sin. He didn't charge God or blame God with wrong. I have set myself a very difficult task this morning. Because many of you know that Job is a big book. It's 40 chapters long. And there's a lot to be said from this book. The 17th, chap, century, 17th century Puritan pastor, Joseph Carroll, preached 424 sermons over 30 years, all from the book of Job. And so there's a lot to be said from this book. And the task I set for myself this morning is to teach the whole story to you this morning. That's why I said I hope you've had coffee, because we're here from chapter 1 right through to the end. But I'm going to draw with a very broad brush this morning. I'm going to be giving the highlights of this story, kind of the jet tour from 30,000 feet, picking up main points. So don't worry. See, Job is one of the oldest stories in human history. The events in this book occur before the life of Moses. So the story dates back before the first five books of the Bible, before they were written. And a lot of scholars believe it was written down in its current form during the reign of King Solomon. But it was undoubtedly was a well-known story that had been passed down from generation to generation. And let's be clear that this is part of the Bible. And so God preserved the story. And we can be confident that this is an accurate retelling that actually took place. And when you pick up the Bible, you find Job kind of in about the middle of the book. But chronologically speaking, Job begins, belongs much earlier in the history, maybe as far back as between chapters 11 and 12 of Genesis, somewhere perhaps between the story of the Tower of Babel and the call of Abraham is where this man Job lived in those ancient days. And so it's one of the most ancient stories in the world. But what's it about? It's about the problem of suffering, something we're all very familiar with. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Fashions change. Technology seems to advance. But the human condition has not been altered in thousands of years. We are today the same hurting, broken lost race that we were the very day when Adam and Eve fell from grace and were banished from God's presence. And that's why the Bible is still as relevant and timely as it has ever been over thousands of years. 
And like no other book, it is relevant and it gives understanding and answers to the great issues of life. It makes sense of human history. It makes sense of the human condition. And so this is the opening scene that we read. This is how it kicks off. Job was an extremely wealthy man. It goes through all of his possessions. He was rich, but he was righteous with it. He wasn't some rich person who felt independent and ignored God. He was a righteous man and was blessed by God. And unbeknownst to him, something took place in the spiritual realm. There was, this, there was a meeting that he didn't know anything about. No one on earth knew anything about this meeting. And it was a meeting between God and Satan. And you heard that little exchange there. You know, Satan came before God and God said, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been roaming to and fro across all the earth. And God said, while you were down there, did you see that guy, Job? Man, what a guy he is. He's good. What a servant of mine. What a righteous man he is. And Satan says, yeah, he's righteous. He's righteous because of how good you've been to him. You put a hedge around him. Can't touch him. Isn't that lovely to think that God does actually put hedges around people? That people are in the center of God's providence and protection. And Satan recognized that. And you know what? I believe that as God's people, we are in the center of God's providence and protection. And we only experience what God allows us to go through. God is protecting his people. And Satan said, that's why. But I tell you this right now. You let him go through some hardship. You let him go through some tough days. You let him lose some of the stuff he's gotten. He will curse you to your face. And so God says, all right, Satan, have at it. Just don't touch him. Just leave him alone. But you can touch everything else he's got. And then we go through this incredible sequence of trials that Job faced. In a single day, it all began, a disastrous day. Messenger comes running, your oxen, your donkeys, your servants, all attacked by marauders and are gone. And then another one comes. Job, fire fell out of heaven, burned up your sheep, all your shepherds. Two disasters in one day. Job's got to be like, wow, what's going on? And then a third messenger runs in, another band of marauders. They came, they took all the camels, killed all more of your servants. And then the worst news of all, a fourth messenger runs in and says, a great wind blew and collapsed your eldest son's house. And all 10 of your children were inside and killed. I would say this qualifies as a bad day. I don't think you've ever experienced as bad a day as that. I know I haven't. Some dark days, sure. But this is the biggest, baddest day in the world. Then 20 verses, and then in verse 20, says that Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, which they did in ancient times, in case you didn't know. They did that whenever they went into a season of mourning and fell on the ground. But immediately his heart turned to worshiping God. And what unfolds, if you know the story, is a record of this man's faith in God through an unbelievable set of trials. His friends, even his own wife, they criticized him. 
They called him and his faith into question. And none of them knew about the meeting in heaven. None of them knew what was going on. They all brought their own opinions, though. But in the end, the trials came to a conclusion, and Job emerged with his faith intact, still looking to God, still trusting. And in the end of this story, God blessed Job so he had twice as much wealth as he had in the beginning. Ten more children. But a lost child can never be replaced. But God did bless him with ten more. God gave him back because of his faithfulness. And so this morning I want to look at uh, some lessons from from Job. And the first lesson is this. Bad things happen to godly people. You may have heard this said before. Bad things happen to good people, but I've got news for you. There isn't any of those. Sorry. Only God is good. He has given us the righteousness of his son, Jesus, when he saved us. And he is working on our character and our lives. But we all fail miserably. Bad things happen to godly people. People who are seeking God, people who love God, people who are trying to live their lives for his honor. Would you note with me that the subject of the book of Job is actually more specific than the problem of suffering. The, the, the book is really about one aspect about that great subject. The question before us in Job isn't just why suffering, it's why do the godly suffer? There's some reasons that the book of Job tells us. And so if you've had a hard time, if you're in a hard time, you want to hear this. Well, firstly, the godly may suffer because we are not yet glorified. What does that mean? It means that at the end of our lives, those who are trusting in God are going to come to the place where either through death or because God ends human history and returns, Either way, we are going to be ushered into his presence. And the Bible says in that moment, we will be glorified. A body that will never decay, never tire, never wear out. But also your sin bias from being born in a lost world will be taken away so we no longer have those compulsions. God's going to remove evil and have us in his presence, worshiping him forever. But that hasn't happened yet. And so we live in a fallen world. And you better understand that. We live in a fallen world and Christians are not absolved from the heartaches of living in a fallen world. But listen to what Job says later in the book in chapter 19. He said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. He believed that God was coming back. He believed that that God was going to restore Eden. They had a promise from the days of Adam and Eve, and he knew about it. He goes on to say in verse 26, And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. God is invisible in our lifetime as he was in Job's. But he knew that he would see his God. One day he would come into his presence. And there are three fascinating things here that Job understands. And if you think that people in the Old Testament times didn't have much understanding, I want to show you how much understanding Job had. 
it's extra, extraordinary knowledge in God. First, he, understand, he understood that things are not right in the world. I think we can all agree with that. But he knew that God is going to put them right. The Redeemer will come and be the sovereign ruler of us all. And this is what he said, For I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Second, he knew the present suffering we are going through, no matter how severe they may be, they are temporary for God's people. He said, after my skin has thus destroyed, has been thus destroyed. See how he's really referring to all the troubles we go through as surface things, not intensely deep. The spirit of man is a whole other ball game. He says, when my skin is gone, yet in my flesh I shall see God. God's going to raise us up in the resurrection. Whom I shall see for myself, he says, and my eye shall behold and not another. He said, everything that is happening to me is temporary. Thirdly, he knew that his hopes must be set on that reality and not on his present suffering. He said, my heart faints or my heart yearns within me. And he was looking for that future day when God would finally take him to himself. And so the godly may suffer because we are not yet glorified. We're living between the glory and the flame, so to speak. We're living in a difficult time. But secondly, the godly may suffer because we have an enemy. We live in a fallen world generally. But specifically, the godly may suffer because we have a very real enemy. Go back to chapter 1 and read those opening scenes where Satan, the enemy of our souls, the adversary of God and his people, came before God seeking permission to test Job. And Job's understanding, he didn't know about that meeting. Everything was coming seemingly out of nowhere. But it was not coincidence. It was not bad luck. It was not fate. Job had an unseen enemy, and that enemy is our enemy. Do you think the devil has given up because of what happened on Calvary? Do you think he has stopped opposing God's family? Listen to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says to every one of us, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Remember what we read back in the book of Job, where God says, Where have you been? walking to and fro across the face of the earth. Here Peter says he's still doing it. So the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're all in the same boat. We all go through hardships and trials. So resist the devil. Peter was no stranger to Satan's attempts, was he? Remember the night of the Last Supper? When Jesus was about to go to the cross, Jesus warned Peter. He said, Satan has asked that he may sift you like wheat. In those times, they would bring in the wheat harvest. They would stick in the winnowing fork and throw them the wheat up in the air. And the chaff would be blown away by the wind and the grain would fall. It was a very violent process. Jesus said, Peter, Satan has asked to do that to you. It's another confrontation like Job. And Jesus said, 
But listen, I've prayed for you, Peter. You're going to make it. And when you do, you'll be an encouragement to your brothers. Peter has gone through it and he says, we need to be sober-minded and vigilant so that we will come through the trials. Thirdly, the godly may suffer because we are being tested and developed. God allows difficulty in our lives to produce something. Your pain, your difficulty is never wasted if you're a child of God. God makes it purposeful. The same thing might happen to somebody else, a neighbor, and just seem meaningless. But if it happens in your life, God will use it for his glory. That was what was going on with Job. It was all part of a test. He didn't know about the arrangements, but he was being tested. And coming through that test brought glory to God, which is the number one purpose of every trial, to bring glory to God. And it developed Job in his faith. Every one of us, when you've, when you've been through some tests in your life, if you look back and you see what God has done in you, what he's made in your life, because you've trusted him, because you've looked, hung on, it's amazing. I can tell you something right now. Job at the end of that book is a different Job than the guy who started in 1 verse 1. As righteous and godly as he was at the beginning, he got some experience he didn't have before. And he's proven the faithfulness of God in wonderful new ways. That's what God wants to do in all of our lives. And so there are three reasons why we may have difficulties in our life. We may suffer because we've not yet been glorified. We're living in a fallen world. We may suffer because we have an enemy, Satan. And we may suffer because we're being tested and developed. And God is wanting to make us stronger than we were before. Here's the point. Godly people experience bad things. Well, secondly, we are not privy to much of God's plan. The Bible tells us a lot about what God is doing in the world. But you know what? There's a lot of things that that they're behind the curtain. That we're not privy to. That we're not aware of. The way that God works and the things that God is doing. We're meant to see in this book that there was an explanation for what was happening to Job, even though Job and his friends did not know it. The scene between God and Satan, that explains it. But they didn't know it. At least a little extra information in your life would change your perspective, wouldn't it? If you were going through a very difficult season, a hard trial, and all of a sudden you got a vision from God granting you permission to be tested, you would face that trial a little bit differently, wouldn't you? Or if the end of the struggle was revealed... If you're going through a really hard time right now and God showed you five years from now when he's worked and things have come through that and now you see the strength in your life, that would change how you run the race, how you go through the difficulty. Job didn't have any of that. He couldn't go to the book and say, pick, pick up his copy of the Bible and go, oh, let's go to chapter 40 and see what happens. Hmm, okay. Wow, would you look at that? Okay. He didn't have the Bible. He didn't have that luxury we have now. This book hadn't been written. And he was living his life with blinders on. 
just exactly like you and me. It's where we live. And we walk by faith. God is as wise and loving in his reservations as he is in his revelations. And I thank God that I don't know everything that is coming. Because some things that have happened in my life, if I'd known ahead of time, I would have been paralyzed with fear. Some things that came along my life, not knowing they were coming was a blessing. And when they came, I hung on to God and he got me through to the other side. And sometimes I failed because I'm human. I live in a fallen world, but I know my Redeemer lives. He reveals enough to give our faith intelligence, but he holds back enough to give our faith the room to be developed and to grow. God is a wise father, and we are not privy to a lot of his plans. Let me give you another lesson. Well-meaning people can give you lousy advice. I think we can all agree on that. Job had three friends that we meet in this book, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Never was it more truly said in the world than it was of these guys. With friends like this, who needs enemies? These were three pieces of work. And what they said to Job in the midst of his calamity is interesting because it includes all the normal menu of things that sincere people say today when a friend is going through a hard time. We first meet these three characters at the end of chapter 2, and we instantly recognize that they did in fact want to help their friend Job. He was their buddy. They liked him. They probably watched camel races together. and They felt very badly for him. Listen to what it says in Job 2, 11 to 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite. Bildad was kind of short. You realize that? He was only Shuhite. Bad dad joke, I know. Zophar the Naamithite. He made an, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Notice that. They didn't say anything at first. They sat there and they wept. If they had left it at that and not opened their mouths, it would have been great. But they opened their mouths and spoiled it. Sometimes the greatest ministry you can provide to someone who's hurting is just the ministry of presence, being there, just to be there for them. Not try to solve all the riddles for them, just be there with them, with your hand upon their shoulder. I think those first seven days were a great ministry to Job. But then they started talking. They poured out the well-meaning platitudes and simplistic assessments and advice that you normally hear. Let's face it. When you, what you read in the book of Job, a lot of it is conventional wisdom. If you saw a person who in one day lost all their livestock, their servants to marauders, they lost 10 of their children in a freak windstorm, 
And then if that guy was suddenly struck with boils all over his body, as it goes on to say what happened later to Job, you probably think, man, this guy is cursed. And you wonder what he'd been up to for all of this bad stuff to happen to him. And you'd probably go, you know, maybe it's time on Sunday morning you come to the altar and just ask God to forgive you for all that bad stuff you've been doing. Because you really must be badly sinning right now for all of this to happen. And there's a lot of people who are very willing to jump to judgments and give advice to hurting people. And I'm not suggesting that good friends can't give us good and helpful counsel in tough times. The Bible says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. There are moments when you really need someone to give you some help and some counsel. But my caution to all of us. So when we see someone going through a trial of a time of trial, it's way too easy to want to jump in, diagnose complex situations, offer answers when we really don't have all the information. Jay Sidlow Baxter said, between the prologue of Job, which shows how Job's trial originated in heaven, and the epilogue, which shows how Job's trial eventuated in enrichment and blessing, we have a group of patriarchal wise acres theorizing and dogmatizing from incomplete premises and deficient data. And that's what the book of Job is. If you're going through a tough trial this morning, whoever you are, my friend, a good and dear person to you may be able to offer a timely word. But just be thankful for their presence most of all. And keep your head. Whatever advice may be given to you, test everything by God's word. Take your trouble to the Lord and seek him in his word. Remember what Job did? He fell and he worshiped the Lord. God can show you if something is wrong or if it's just life in a fallen world. He can show you and he can give you strength and courage to endure. Fourthly, God doesn't need our opinions or counsel. This is very hard for us to hear. Imagine if you heard someone saying saying it to a person going through a terrible trial like Job went through. You'd wince. You wouldn't, you, if you heard someone say, you know what? God doesn't need your opinions. God doesn't need your counsel. Imagine someone in a desperate time pleading with God and hearing God say, I don't need your opinion. It sounds kind of harsh. But guess what? You get to chapter 38, and that's exactly what God said to Job, lovingly as a father. Job 38, 4 to 6. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On, what's, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its, its cornerstone? I'm sure you've heard people, as I've heard people, going through a hard trial and in their prayers. And listen, I'm guilty of this myself trying to counsel God. Me or a loved one or a friend is going through a hard time and I say, God, if you would just do this and then do that and if you would take care of this situation and if you would grant this healing and then convince this that this person and then get them a new job and surround them with these people, this is how you fix it all, God. And God says, really? God said to Job, 
Oh, really? Thanks for your help, but I really don't need it. God has wisdom far beyond ours. And he knows exactly what is going on, and we don't know the half of it. We've got to trust him. And that might sound harsh, but it's not harsh at all. God's not angry with Job. He's delighting in Job. God is speaking as the one who knows the end from the beginning. He's correcting Job because he knows the deliverance that he is shortly about to bring. There's tremendous comfort that comes to us when we realize God doesn't need our advice. When we recognize his great omniscience and wisdom, we can trust him and rest in the knowledge that he's in control. Does that mean you shouldn't pray? No. Pour your heart out to God. He wants to hear your prayer, but leave the answer to him. Job doesn't feel beaten down by God. He's been adjusted. That's all. He's been helped. His response in chapter 40 is, I lay my hand over my mouth. That's what Job said at the end. I lay my hand over my mouth. He's saying, I'm going to shut up now, God. Good idea, Job. Don't stop praying, but tell God the problem, not the solution. That's up to him. And quickly, number five, when God says enough, everything changes. This is the bit you've been waiting for. When God says enough, everything changes. People have been waiting for this for thousands of years now, for a couple thousand years. They've been waiting for God to say enough as the Lord returns. And you get to the right to the to the end of the book of Job in Job 42:10 and it says and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before he was already the richest man in the east God gave him so much more it doesn't mean that if you obey God he's going to make you rich let's just point that out it's not prosperity gospel folks that's not gospel But it does mean he rewards obedience and he's got the answers in his great hands. Listen to me very clearly, please, this morning. Satan is not in control of your destiny. If you are a child of God, Jesus Christ is in control of your destiny. One of the most striking things about the book of Job is the powerlessness of Satan to do anything without God's permission. God is in control. If you want dualism where God and the devil are fighting out in this great battle, go watch Star Wars, because that's what that is. It's not the Bible. That's good force and bad force. That's not the Bible. In the Bible, God is in sovereign and absolute total control. Satan has no power unless God allows it. That's it all the time. And the book opens with Satan being summoned into God's presence. And so don't miss that. Satan's told to report to God. And when he's told to report, he comes. And Satan can't touch one of God's children unless God allows it. You are safe in God's hands today. And if he's allowing you to go through a tough time, trust him. He is accomplishing great things through it for his glory and your good. That's the promise of God's word. 
And the moment he says it's over, it will be over. It may be here on earth, or it may not be until eternity. But the moment he says it's over, thank you, Jesus, it's over.